Hello and welcome to the Displaced African podcast. The Displaced African is the African Immigrants Personal Development blog. It can be found at www.thedisplacedafrican.com. Hello everybody, this is Mwangi here. I am actually recording this message during the day, so if you hear a lot of hustle and bustle, it's because I'm not recording at my usual night time. Today's interview is one of those things that, in all honesty, when I started this blog um, last year, around last year, early this year, I never would have thought it would have happened. I'm interviewing one of the biggest, actually he is the biggest personal development blogger on earth, Steve Pavlina. And something pretty cool, um, allow me to give in my shameless plug real quick, is that over the last two weeks, I've actually interviewed Steve Pavlina, okay, not two weeks, two months, Steve Pavlina, Yaro Starak, um, Paul Culligan, a lot of cool, cool guys, Gary Vaynerchuk, and all all those guys are guys I never would have thought I would have been able to approach an interview, Benin, Wangi, Brown, so it's very cool. Um, for those of you, I know that I have a couple of people who've asked me, how do you start up a podcast and stuff like that, and how do you get an audience and stuff like that, I think just start doing things really you'd be surprised you'll really be surprised where you can go and i think this interview is just one of those reflections of you really never know what will happen this interview was absolutely awesome we have a lot of practical useful information that we put out there and so ladies and gentlemen please enjoy and if you have any comments um the website is the displacedafrican.com just go to the displacedafrican.com go to the podcast section leave a comment or just email me and let me know what's on your mind. I hope this is of use to you. Steve Pavlina, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate this. Have a great day. I'm out. Okay. Um, hello, everybody. This is Mwangi here, and I'm here with someone who needs no introduction, Steve Pavlina. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Mwangi? I am very well. I'm very well. For the people who might not know who you are and what you have done, please uh, give a quick snapshot of who you are and what you have done. Okay, well, I'm best known for my website, stevepevelina.com, which is uh, mainly a blog on personal development. It has over 700 free articles. I started it four years ago in 2004, and it's uh, become one of the most successful and popular personal development websites on the Internet. And just recently, my new book came out, Personal Development for Smart People, and that, that is based on some of the ideas from the website, but it's really all all fresh content. So that's been published by Hay House, and I'm also um, speaking professionally about these ideas right now. So the, the basic idea of the, of the website and of my work, though, is teaching people how to live more consciously and how to grow consciously, how to make decisions for themselves instead of accepting the socially conditioned ideas we've been brought up to believe. Okay. Um, and just so that we get to know you a, a bit uh, a bit better, um, you know, there are people who say that um, the, we, we won't remember every moment in our life. We'll just remember very special, defining moments. So I'd be curious, what would you say are moments that defined you as a person, defined Steve Pavlina? One, one of the moments that defined me was when I was 19 years old and I was sitting in a jail cell. I was, I'd just been arrested for felony grand theft. And I had a problem with uh, kleptomania in my late teens when I was 18, 19 years old. I just got really addicted to shoplifting, and I, I would do it just for the thrill. I wouldn't even keep most of the items that I stole. I would uh, go out and steal candy bars and then give them away because I didn't think the candy was healthy. So I did it just for you know this, this thrill. It became this addiction for me, and it you know led me down a very dark path. And as I'm sitting in jail for a few days, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what am I doing with my life here? This is this is really not what I want. And it was then, really, while I was just sitting in this eight by ten cell wearing these orange, you know, um, jail pajamas, <laughs> you might call them, that, that I, re I really got the sense of responsibility for my life. That was that was a key defining moment. Um, and I you know, I was I was I was scared at the time and I didn't really know how to change my life. But I realized in that moment that I didn't have to fix everything overnight and probably that wouldn't even be possible anyway. But what I could do is just point my life in the direction of positive growth. If I just worked on growing a little bit each day, I could eventually turn my life around. And, and that, that's really what I've done ever since for the past 18 years. I've just focused on growing a little bit as a, as a person, as a human being each day. And that has really made an enormous difference in my life, and it's allowed me to touch the lives of many other people too. It's been just incredibly rewarding. I'd say that's definitely one of the most um, empowering experiences of my life, even though 
It happened while I was in jail. Okay, and of course, um, your your new book recently came out on Amazon.com, and I was curious, what was uh, the process like of writing the book from, like, actually, first, how did you get the idea to write the book? Well, I, I can kind of answer both those questions about the idea and the process, because they're interrelated. So Great. I actually got the idea to write a book in early 2005, less than a year after I started blogging, and I decided I was just going to write a book about advice on personal development. So I, I made an outline for it, and I started writing, and I wrote about three chapters of it. This was around May of 2005, and, I, and about 30,000 words total. And after I started looking at the work I'd written, I realized it was just another Me Too book. It wasn't really the best work I thought I could do. So I scrapped that whole, that whole project at the time. I just set it aside, and I realized I want to do something a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, something with a more powerful message. I didn't want to just write yet another book of, of, self-help, of uh, self-help advice, you know, a book filled with ideas on how to you know, improve your productivity a little bit, improve your self-discipline, make more money, um, manage your time better, have better relationships, that kind of thing. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to identify something a little bit deeper. What are the really profound aspects of personal growth that are so universal we can apply them to any area of our life. And what, what happened is over the next couple of years as I was exploring these ideas, not even writing, you know, working on the book directly during this time, I was just trying to get the right idea for it. And the, the idea c- came about because I started noticing patterns in the type of feedback I would get on articles. Like I'd write an article about how to improve your finances, and somebody would send me feedback and say, oh, that was a great article on helping me improve my relationship. And then, you know, I'd write another article about health, and somebody would say, that gave me a whole new insight on my spiritual practice. I thought, wow, you know, I'm writing articles on different topics, but people are finding some idea in those articles that's, that's deeper. It's, uh, I, you know, deeper than the article, article's original topic. So I thought there's, there must be some universal truth below the surface here, such that if we understood them, we could help ourselves grow in any area of our li- any area of our lives. We could grow by improving our health, by improving our relationships, um, improving the level of abundance in our lives, improving our career direction, feeling a, a deeper sense of of a mission and purpose to our lives, a deeper spiritual connection. I felt like if we could understand what growth what, as a human being was really all about, then we wouldn't need these complicated rules and all these different experts telling us how to improve our health, our relationships, our finances, and so on. We could just follow this simple set of principles to guide us, and that would be the essence of conscious growth. And so eventually I figured out what those principles were, and um, that, that's what I wrote the book about. So it's really a book about what are, what are the fundamentals of personal growth? What does it mean to grow as a conscious human being? That was the question I tried to answer by writing this book. And um, what is the process day-to-day? How, um the, the writing process itself, was it um, you'd get in front of the computer and just wait for something to come? Did you create an outline? What was, yeah, the practical step well, that you took? Well, it, it, was, it was different than most people would probably think because the writing was very easy. It just took a few months, and it really just flowed out of me. The difficult part was spending a couple years coming up with the right idea for the book and, and developing the framework. So I spent a lot more time thinking and experimenting for this book than I did writing. By the time I got to the writing part, I'd already figured out you know, what I needed to say. And so it wasn't a matter of sitting at my computer waiting for inspiration. The inspiration was already there. It was just a matter of basically sitting down and typing as fast as I could. So it, you know, I wrote the book over, uh, over a period of a few months, but it wasn't really that difficult um, to get the writing part. The hard part was, it was in the um, coming up with the original framework. And So I guess you could say what I really was doing is I spent you know, a couple years trying to find the right inspired idea. And, and once I had that idea that was worthy of a whole book, you know, not just an individual article, but some idea that was big enough to express in the form of a book, then um, that inspiration just drove my writing. So I could sit down any time of day and work on it. I could work on it. You know, it starts working out sometimes at 8 p.m. At, in the evening and just, you know, flow till midnight. Other times I get up at 5 a.m., start working on it, and just, you know, flow till noon. Um, and sometimes I would just work in a half hour or an hour here or there when I had, had time. Okay, and um, in um, you just talked about flow, and just as a as a quick segue, um, describe for people who might not understand uh, the concept of flow, and 
Have you always been able to experience flow in what you do? Or if not, how did you get to a place where you were experiencing flow? Because it seems like you experience it on a very regular basis. Yeah, I definitely experience it on a regular basis. Ever since I've been running my personal development website, I've pretty much been in a constant state of flow. It's, um, I, I've never had writer's block since I've been writing the site. I never experienced writer's block while I was writing my book. It's more like writer's diarrhea, I would say. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because on my website, I've I've already written about 20 books worth of free content, and I feel I, I can easily, you know, do 10 times that much if I just keep going, you know, and, and beyond. And the, what what happened though is the way I discovered what puts me in a state of flow was when I was working um, many years ago. I was running a computer game development business, so I'd write and publish computer games and and mostly sell them over the internet. And I, I was working on some projects and. Originally, when I started the business in 1994, I was working on some projects with larger publishers and encountering nothing but problems. And the projects kept getting canceled. There were funding problems. It, it was just a nightmare. And I realized that, you know, while there are other people involved, the, the problem that kept me out of flow on those projects was my own mindset. And my mindset was that my goal was to create this computer game that would be a hit. You know, it would sell well. It would get great reviews. Everybody would love playing it. I'd be able to go into software stores and see it on the shelves selling. So I was really focused on the external aspects of success. You know, that success meant getting accolades and getting money and, and you know, having people acknowledge your work. And as, soon as, as long as I focused on those goals, I just met with nothing but misery. I, I, was, I was always frustrated. Um, all my plans just seemed to collapse. They never really seemed to work out. It seemed like I was making a little bit of forward progress at times, but it was always a struggle. And I never really quite got the kind of results I wanted. And then, you know, really out of frustration, I, I kind of got in touch with, um, with my heart and, and just asked myself, you know, what do you really want here? Why is it you are developing computer games in the first place? And I realized that I, I didn't truly care that much about the money and the, and the career success and, you know, having people um, see my games on the shelves in the store and, you know, getting awards for it or anything like that. What I really cared about was just the creativity aspect of it. You know, it's the, it's the artistic side. I just wanted to create something new. I wanted to add something to the substance of the universe that didn't exist before. You know, I thought it was this process of like taking an abstract idea and putting it into some concrete physical form that, that people could interact with um, it, and give people a new experience. So, so instead of focusing on what I was getting and what I would get from it, from releasing a a computer game that I would develop, I started focusing on what I could give through the medium of computer game development, what I could express, what I could share. And once I got myself into that mindset and really let go of all those other things and stopped caring about what happened with the money or whether the game was successful or not, and I just focused on the, art, the artistic creative side, that's what put me in the state of flow. And I, I flowed through um, creating a new game in six months for virtually zero budget. I, I found an artist to... Um, who agreed to do the, the artwork for a percentage of the sales, and I found, uh, you know, even though there may not have been much in the way of sales, and I found a musician who was willing to do the music in the game for free in exchange for credit. And, and so the game, you know, the game was developed in, in a period of six months, and I loved it. I had, a, I had a great time developing it. It was the most fun project I, I did, even though when I was developing it, I had virtually no income coming in. I had to do C++ tutoring on the side to make up, to make up the slack, and I, um, I was deep in debt. So, you know, even, even under that circumstance, just by focusing on the giving, on the giving side, on the creative side, on the expressive side, that, that turned everything around. And, and when the game was released, it sold very well, and it won several awards, and it went on to basically generate enough income to sustain me for, for many years. And even today, I'm still getting royalty checks, you know, even though I haven't been in that industry for a long time, I'm still getting royalty checks each month for, for, for um, one of the games I published back then. So that's kind of um, funny how that can play out over time, you know, that, that by focusing on the giving side, you can get all those other things, all the external aspects of success. When you focus on the external success, you, you lose touch with what's really important to you, I think. Okay. And how would you describe flow? Flow, to me, is... It, flow can have one of two directions. You're trying to pull things into you or you're trying to, trying to express things outward. And I think people think of, of, um, of flow too often in, in the wrong way. You know, like if, if your life is flowing, then you're successful, then you have all these things um, coming to you. 
when really I think of flow as an outflow, that when I'm in a state of flow, I'm, I'm expressing um, ideas that inspire me. So whatever comes to me, I'm just, I'm just expressing it. I'm just giving it, and I'm not worried about whether it's going to come back to me. I'm not worried about if it generates income or not. Uh, when I wrote my book, I didn't care if it was going to be a bestseller or not. I really kind of put myself in a state where that didn't matter to me. I didn't worry about how many copies it sold. I didn't worry about how much money it, it made. If I, was, if I was focused on the money, I would have released it as an e-book and, and self-published it through my own website where I could keep all the, all the money that came through instead of working with another publisher where I just get a small royalty on each copy sold. But, but flow to me is, is focusing on creative self-expression, on just allowing ideas to come to you and, and putting them in some kind of form that they can be shared. So, so, I mean, I guess if I was to define flow as a single word, I would say it would be sharing. And for um, let's let's t assume that we have someone who has a, a message that they want to share, and you know they want to become you know a published author as you currently are. Um, how would you recommend someone who might be starting? I mean, from nothing in quotes. How would you recommend they go about that process of you know um, publishing the book and becoming an author who actually can actually get their message out to a lot of people? Well, I mean, the way I did it was was to simply use the internet. See, I, I talked to my book publisher, which is Hay House, a while ago, and I asked them, I said, out of curiosity, why did you offer me a book publishing deal? What, you know, what is it that, um, that attracted you to me? Because they came to me originally. I've, I've never submitted this book to, um, to a bunch of different publishers and, and got rejections. This is a book that has never been rejected, which is kind of rare in the publishing world. And, and basically, their response was that they look for two things in new authors. They, they look for, number one, a powerful message, and number two, some kind of established platform. And a, a platform is just an audience. And, the, and they basically said that if the message is powerful enough, it should draw an audience to it. If they see what, you know, what the new author is telling them is a powerful message, but there's no audience around it, then that's a risk for them because they have to, they have to then build the audience. What they want to do is find an author who has a small audience and turn it into a much larger audience to, to leverage that message, to get that powerful message out there. So, that, I mean, that's basically um, why I ended up getting a book publishing deal. And I actually got offers from three other publishers as well for, uh, you know, who are interested in doing a book deal with me. And it was because I had a message and I have an audience around that message. Now, the question, of course, is how do you build an audience? And, the, and my, my answer is you take your message and you give it away for free to as many people as you can. So when I, when I started blogging on my website, I wasn't selling the message. I was just giving it away for free. I posted it on the website, and I just started writing articles for free. And I just did the best job I could. But I, I, I wasn't trying to market the website in terms of generating income from it. I just wanted to tell people about the website, that here it is. There's free information. It wasn't teaser content like it was you know, to bait people coming to visit the site and then sell them something. It was just the best ideas I could share. So... By giving all those ideas away for free, by expressing that message for free, that built up an audience. That built up a, a group of people who were interested in hearing that. And since there was no barrier for them to come to the site, they didn't have to buy anything. Um, you know, didn't have to, you know, register for an account to get a password to, you know, log in or anything like that. They could just come to the website very easily and start reading immediately. Um, that that made it very easy for people to spread the word about the site. So as soon as one person came and liked it, they could share it with their friends. You know, so when you when you remove that um, that financial barrier and you just give your content away for free, you'll find that it's a lot easier to build the platform. It's a lot easier to spread your message. Now the the thing is, is if you do that for a while and you work hard at it, and nobody's coming, it probably says you have a weak message that people just aren't interested. It doesn't mean you need to do more marketing or work harder on your on your promotion. It probably means you need to find a deeper, more powerful message. Does that make sense? Yep. So, um, and I've I've heard you uh, talk about this a lot of times. You, it seems from what I can gather, you didn't actually market stevepavlina.com at all, did you? No. In fact, uh, to this day, I've, I haven't spent a dime on marketing the site. I haven't spent any money on marketing or promotion at all. I, it, word of mouth does all of that. Wow. And did you like you know go do the the free stuff like link exchanges, free articles, and stuff like that? Not very much. I did a few link exchanges early on in the site, but they really didn't do much for me, and I, and I stopped doing them shortly thereafter. I think I maybe did them for a few months and then, and then just stopped. 
what really built up the traffic to the site was simply writing the best content I could and, and you know, just getting into the hands of enough people. Um, and what happened is, you know, just get it, you just start getting a little trickle of traffic to the site. Maybe you do, maybe you do a few link exchanges or something, but that's just a seed. That's just to get a few, few people coming to the site. But that doesn't really grow the traffic. What, what grew the traffic for me was people referring their friends and family to the website. They would, people would print out articles and pass them around at work to their coworkers. And in order for them to do that, though, it has to be a powerful message. It has to be something that really moves people. If, if people are moved, they'll share the content. But you know, if, if you're writing content and sharing it, and it's really just what I might call info crack, you know, like like uh, you know, information used as a drug. You, you understand that? Yep. <laughs> so you know, just o- online info crack, I like to say, where you're just putting out information, you know, to try to get traffic, just because it might have some shock value, but it's not really going to do anything for people, or you know, it, it might be the kind of thing that people are just addicted to reading. And you'll get some visitors to your site, but they're they're not necessarily going to share that. It's not going to affect them. The people will share the content and it affects them in some way where it benefits them, or it gives them a shift in their mindset, gives them a new way of thinking about their lives. That's that's the kind of stuff they share because now by sharing, they're providing value to their friends. You know, if you provide value to those people, um, to your readers, they can in turn do their friends a favor when they when they share your work. So that's what you have to think is like, you know, write an article or create a podcast that's so good that people share it because by sharing it, they're actually doing a favor for the people they share it with. Okay. And um, now to get back to the book, in um, in the book, the the primary principles that you break everything down to are truth, love, and power. And then there's the secondary ones of oneness, authority, courage, and intelligence. And um, I, I, I'm curious, how did you arrive at the principles? Was it after a long period of thinking, all of a sudden you had an aha moment and seven ideas popped into your head? Or was it they came, they kind of bled out? How, how did it happen? It came, it came a little bit at a time, really. It was, uh, it was very difficult because I was looking for principles that were universal. And I wasn't just looking for a single principle. I was looking for some kind of complete structure, some kind of way that I could give people a simple and elegant mindset for thinking about personal growth that would that would not be too complicated and, and you know not this enormous set of rules you had to follow for going through life that nobody's going to be able to put into practice but coming up with something really simple um, that we could just hold in our heads as we walk around throughout our days and, and apply it realistically to any kind of problem or situation so really what happened is the first principle I came across that I felt was truly universal was the principle of truth I thought, okay, here's a principle we should all be able to agree on because when we, when we align ourselves with truth, we grow and we improve no matter what area of life we're talking about. If we um, bring more truth to our knowledge about health, we can become healthier. It, it helps us. But if we turn our back on truth in the area of health, we're only going to suffer for it. You know, if we're in denial of our health problems, um, if we're in denial of what we need to do to improve our health, if we lie to ourselves, if we, you know, if we justify what we're doing, um, or excuse it, explain it away, even though we know we could be doing better, that's not going to help us grow. That's, that's turning towards a more unconscious situation rather than conscious growth. So once I had truth, I was trying to think of, you know, what else, what else will link to that? You know, to, I, I, you know, at first I thought about all the ways we could apply truth, like, yeah, you know, bring more truth to your relationships and your relationships will, will improve. Bring more truth to your career and you'll end up with a better career, you know, just by admitting the truth to ourselves. And, and one of the most important truths is simply how you feel about a certain thing, you know, admitting that maybe you don't feel the path you're on is the right one for you. Um, and and as I as I continued to explore truth, I thought, okay, you know, how do we how do we discover truth? And, and so the the second principle that came up was the principle of love, which is not so much the emotion of love, although that's an aspect of it. It's it's more love as a verb, in the form of going out and making new connections. I see love as, as an activity that we do. We, um, when we love, we basically give something our attention. We focus on it. And when we focus on things that we're, we feel a really strong connection to, that we feel very compatible with, that's when we experience that emotion of love. Um, when you go out in life and you meet someone and you feel like they're your soulmate, you know, we might experience this emotion of love and joy. But what we're really doing is we're connecting with something that's, that's very important to us. So I, I, I got those two principles first. And I, but I always felt like that wasn't enough. There's something else that's myth, missing. Because okay, we have this, you know, we have this idea of truth, 
which is basically our, our knowledge, our, our, our perceptions, our predictions about where our lives are going. And we have this aspect of love, which is the ability to connect. And so, you know, by connecting with different things, we can, we can discover more truth. Um, but there was, there was some missing element I felt, and that missing element I, I end up eventually sort of stumbling upon, and I just end up calling it power, which is basic, power is basically our ability to create our reality and, and our ability to take action, to, to change the world, to, uh, to creatively express who we are. So when I got those three things, I, I had the sense that, um, that it seemed complete. It seemed like nothing was missing. So what I tried to do is I tried to reduce all the good advice I found in personal development to some combination of truth, love, and power. I thought, okay, let's, let's go through my bookshelf, and I've read over a 1,000 books on personal development. I'm going through my bookshelf, and I'm taking every book, and I'm thumbing through it, looking at the ideas, looking at the chapters and the topics, and I'm thinking, you know, what is the advice here? And I noticed that every book was basically about some combination of truth, love, and power. The books either are trying to tell us how to discover new truths, or they're teaching us truths, they're giving us valuable information and knowledge, um, a way of looking at reality that's different than what we might have previously done, or they're talking about love, how to go out and create new connections, how to, how to connect deeper with ourselves, how to connect with other people, how to connect with what we want, how to let go of what we don't want. Or they're talking about power, how to empower ourselves, how to take action, uh, be more disciplined, be more productive, be more focused, uh, take more effort. And um, when, I, when I noticed that, uh, you know, I realized, okay, this is, a, this is a complete model because there was nothing I found in any of those books that I couldn't explain as some combination of truth, love, and power. But this is the this is the underlying structure between um, the entire field of personal development. This is this is what it means to grow as a conscious human being to bring ourselves into alignment with truth, love, and power. Now, the, the simple way I came up with the four secondary principles of of oneness, authority, courage, and intelligence is just that if truth, love, and power are truly universal principles, then if you apply them at the same time, what you're applying must also be a universal principle. Okay, so if so if, a, if principle A is universal and principle B is universal, then principle A plus B must be universal too. It's a little simple mathematical thing. So, you know, I, I wanted to go out and test that. So I thought, what is the combination of truth and love? And I, I came up with oneness. And what is the combination of love and power? That turned out to be courage. And what is the combination of truth and power? That turned out to be authority. And what is the combination of all three, truth, love, and power? That uh, I ended up defining as intelligence. Another possible word I was thinking about using was wisdom. And when all those... Um, when, I, when I explored all those secondary principles uh, and went really deep into them, I realized they were also universal. And when I put the whole model together, seven principles, that gave me a whole different way of thinking about personal growth. It was uh, amazingly empowering. I, I've used it in my own life to make some changes. And that's been, uh, I can see that it's worked, and that other people I've taught it to, they've been pretty excited to, to use this model and to see how much it simplifies their um, the way they look at their problems, the way they look at their challenges, and how they can grow through those challenges. Okay, wow. Because <laughs> it was it was pretty amazing the fact that you could actually boil everything down. Because when I first um, picked up the book, I was kind—I must say—I was kind of—I I thought, well, I'm sure it'll, it'll it'll cover most stuff, but it won't cover everything. I mean, you just can't cover everything. There's so many books. There's you know, there's the Anthony Robbins, there's the Timothy Ferris. There's so much diversity in the area, but I mean, as you promised in the book, you actually broke everything down to the principles, and that—that's pretty. That was pretty amazing, I must say, pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I actually, I actually went, you know, I went through Tony Robbins' work, and I saw how, you know, he talks. I mean, like his book, Personal Power, or I mean, Unlimited Power, or his program, you know, his audio program, Personal Power. It's all about power and empowering ourselves. And there's some aspects of his work that really overlap with my model, and there's other aspects I felt like he was missing. Like, he doesn't really talk much about the combination of truth and love. He doesn't spend much time talking about oneness. Um, he'll talk a lot about the combination of truth and power, though. He'll talk about authority, that we need to be the authorities in our lives. We need to set goals, make decisions. That's basically the principle of authority. You know, authority is like taking command of your life in a way that's aligned with truth. So you're being realistic and grounded, but you're also being strong and empowered. That's basically Tony Robbins' message. That's why he's become such an authority in this field. But on, on the other side... We have experts like um, like Eckhart Tolle. He he really focuses on the on the combination of truth and love. He teaches oneness that we're all we're all connected. We're all part of this larger whole. That uh, we need to let go of our individual egos and and you know express more compassion. 
Um, and you know, you, you can find other people who, who might be out there you know, teaching other aspects of these. It's, it's really quite fascinating. You'll, you'll find that different experts focus on different parts of this triangle of truth, love, and power. Um, you, know, you can probably think of people out in the world who, exu who just exude courage, but they may not be the most honest people. You know, they may not be the most truthful people. Um, you can think of people who you know, just um, exude oneness, but maybe they're not that powerful. Maybe they're not that strong. Maybe they're not very empowering. They're teaching us to be more loving, but they're not necessarily teaching us how to take more action and to make, cha make real changes in the world. So I, I found that a lot of these experts have really great messages, and I, and I absolutely respect the work they're doing. The, the, the part that I wanted to play in this was to bring them all together, to, to find a holistic model that connects all the dots, that, that, um, you know, that, that combines what Tony Robbins is doing with, say, what, um, what the Dalai Lama is teaching. <laughs> because they each have elements that are, that are very empowering, that are very positive. Um, but I, I, I feel in everyone's message out there, I'm getting a piece of the puzzle, but there's, there's a larger hole beneath it. And I wanted to know what that holistic, um, that holistic structure beneath was. And, and, and that's, what I, that's what I wanted to teach. I wanted to, um, I wanted to find out you know, what is it that connects the dots between all these people. When, whenever we see a message that works on some level, but maybe is missing a piece, and what are the other pieces we can plug into that? And, and what's, the, what's the whole structure? What can we teach? And I, I think when people um, have read those other personal development books and then they read this one, this is the one that finally fills in all the gaps. This is the one that connects the dots. This is, this is the one you know, um, that, that, that connects the experts that teach power with those that teach truth with those that teach love. It you know, connects the oneness and the courage and authority. And the, final, the, the basic model we end up with is, is one of intelligence. And, and, and the way I define intelligence is a, in the book is simply that intelligence is our alignment with truth, love, and power. So it's not about IQ or book smarts or how much you know or anything like that. It's, it's, it's really um, intelligence is about how to live as the most conscious human beings we can. Okay. Um, and one of the, the truths that you, you, you brought into to my attention that, to be honest, I never would have really thought would have been possible until I actually read it um, on your blog. This was probably a few months ago. I don't remember how long it was that I read it. was how you managed to uh, finish college in three semesters instead of four years. Now, that, that, just, that really blew me away because, I mean, coming from where I come from, I, just, I did not think that was actually possible. I mean, maybe you could go to summer school, maybe you could go to winter school and you know, finish it in like three years, but not, not three semesters. So what, what I thought is, because you know, a lot of the people who uh, listen to the podcast are students. If, if I were to give you like an average student, you know, to mentor and, and he, want, he said he wanted to finish his university, his four-year degree as you did in three semesters, how would you take this average person and help him, you know, instill the mindsets and the habits and what would, what would he be doing to finish, to basically copy what you did? Okay, well, what's, what's funny is um, I read about a student years later who actually graduated college in two semesters. <laughs> so wow. I, don't, I certainly don't have, don't have the record in that area. He, he used a totally different strategy than I did. Um, he basically took as many AP college courses and, and AP tests as he could. So he had a ton of uh, AP units going in. What's, what's an AP unit? Um, AP means um, advanced placement. So it's basically you're taking classes or tests in high school that give you college credit. So when he went into college, when he started college, he was practically halfway done already because he had so much um, of these transfer credits from high school. Now I did I did some of that too in high school, but not nearly as much as he did. So, um, but that was that I thought was a really cool strategy. If I had to do it all over again, I would use his strategy of taking all these AP tests and and you know obviously you're going to have to do a lot of work and a lot of study at the time. But, and I'm not, I'm not sure if that would have worked great for my major, which was computer science and math, so, because there's just so much technical stuff you need to still learn. Um, so, but, but basically, what would I teach an average um, student who wanted to do this kind of thing? Well, I think the first thing I would teach them is not to be average, <laughs> because average people don't do this. <laughs> so, um, but the, 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 tru the truth is that I actually went to college, you know, um, more than once. I went to... When I, when I first got out of high school, I was a straight-A student all through high school. I was a good student in high school. I was captain, captain of my school's academic decathlon team. 
and I was president of the math club, and I, um, I was an honor student, and I got accepted into many great colleges. I got accepted in UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego, Carnegie Mellon, um, Caltech, I think, the, I think Harvey Mudd, you know, in college. A lot, a lot of great schools I got into, and so I pretty much had my pick. And I ended up going to UC Berkeley, and that's, um, that's where I pretty much self-destructed. <laughs> I, uh, um, I was a, started as a computer science major, and I uh, basically just um, fooled around a lot. You know, I, I really kind of majored in partying and alcohol. I was going to parties <laughs> a week, and I was drinking a lot. And I really just wasn't taking school seriously. And it was kind of weird to go through that transition because it started basically my first month at school. Um, and, and, you know, w within a few semesters, I was expelled. <laughs> I found out they do that when your GPA starts with the, with the decimal point. <laughs> so, you know, I had a, G I had a GPA that like, was less than 1, <laughs> 1 1.0. So it was pretty bad. Wow. So, I, I, yeah, because <laughs> I wasn't even showing up to class. I was just fooling around, you know. I wasn't <laughs> learning anything there. I was just – I was just uh, I was hanging out, just being social and stuff. And I realized, though, at the time, you know, while it was self-destructive and that, you know, I was getting into the kleptomania thing all the time. That's when I got arrested and, you know, it was just um, – was really going downhill there. What, what I was also doing it was uh, is I was kind of scraping away all of society's expectations of me. And uh, I, it's like I destroyed all of, all of the expectations other people had of me, including the expectations that I inherited from, from those people that I was holding in myself. And when I scraped all that away and, and basically, you know, hit rock bottom, I, you know, kind of destroyed my reputation and um, nobody thought much of me after that point. I, I had this chance to consciously rebuild my life and I had this chance to make my own decisions. And even though I, I when I went back to school, um, again, at, uh, I went to Cal State Northridge, and this was really like, you know, I'm going back to school three years after I, um, after I originally started college. And in between, I worked, uh, you know, I worked a, um, basically a job in retail sales for $6 an hour just because I wanted to stay below the radar and live a normal life for a while. And I, I, I set this goal to graduate in three semesters um, at the time I started because I, I felt like I had this ability to do something more with my life. I, I, I felt like, um, you know, I wasn't living up to my potential. And so I thought, you know, what would happen if I really committed to doing my very best? If I really committed to living up to my potential, what would I be capable of? And I, and I thought, you know, I could probably go through college a lot faster because I saw that there was a huge difference, a huge gap between average performance and exceptional performance. You know, and I, 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 the, I think the key difference is that this time when I was going to school, it was a conscious choice I was making for myself it wasn't this inherited goal. I knew why I was going. The real reason I was going to school at the time was not to get my college degree in computer science. See, I really didn't even care that much about the degree. <laughs> I realized it didn't actually matter that much to me. I mean, yeah, I wanted it, but I, you know, it was just a piece of paper to use to convince other people of my worth. And I thought, I don't really need that piece of paper. But what I needed to do was to convince myself of my worth. You know, I needed to convince myself of what I, I needed to measure what my real potential was. So I wanted to make things as hard on myself as possible. <laughs> and, the, and the reason I, I, you know, set a goal of graduating in three semesters is that because of the unit, you know, the units I needed to graduate, you know, more than 100 semester units, I, I, um, I, I didn't think I could do it in, um, in two semesters because I wouldn't have been able to schedule all the classes. It would have just been physically impossible to, to put them into my schedule. You know, I would I would have had to take like like um, 50 or 60 hours of, of classes every week, and they simply didn't offer that many. <laughs> you know, so um, that was the only thing that stopped me from doing it in two or trying to do it in two. So so that I thought the minimum I could try to do it in was three, it would, and it would just be like by scheduling classes, um, you know, like all throughout the day. So I remember my first semester, I took 31 units, which translates to about 31 hours of class per week in the classroom. And that's not counting homework and lab assignments and things like that. Dang. So and then and then the next semester I, uh, I I took 39 units and the semester after that I took 37, and I even added a double major in mathematics in the last semester because um, that was that was um, uh, 
something that was pretty easy to get if you were a computer science major. You just had to take a you know a few extra classes, and you you, you get a double major in math. So it was just something I noticed, like oh, I could pick up a double major in math if I select the right electives and um, and take a couple extra classes, and that was it. So I didn't even go to summer school um, to do that. It was was by taking on a heavy course load. Now, if I were teaching somebody else to do this, I wouldn't initially teach them about time management principles. I wouldn't teach them. A, I wouldn't focus on trying to get them to go through college in like uh, in like three semesters or, or whatever as a way, as a way to achieve their degree faster. What I would ask is, um, you know, how would you like to perform a test to see um, how good you can perform when you're really doing your when you're really trying to do your absolute best. See, so see the reason the reason you know we have averages is because people aren't doing their best. You know, the average student is not doing the best they can. They're just they're just performing at an average level of performance. You know, they're going to spend a lot of time going through each semester just fooling around and um, you know doing idle socializing, uh, watching TV, um, going to parties and stuff. Now I did some of that too, but it was I used it as a reward. You know, when I'd worked hard and stuff. So it was like just to blow off some steam. It was not a way of procrastinating for me. So you know, when I when I in, in teaching a student to do this, the basic idea is that it's a test. It's a test of of how how well you can perform when you're trying to do your absolute best. So maybe some people can do the three semester thing just like I did. Maybe some people, like the other uh, the other student I mentioned, can do it in two semesters if they prepare for it well in advance. But you know, how often in our lives do we really set aside a, a a, a good length of time to just go all out and just try to do our absolute best to to apply everything we think we can apply. You know, if we have all these time management techniques we know in our heads, are we actually putting them into practice? Well, what I, you know, I realized that if um, if I created some kind of external circumstance of signing up for all these extra classes, see, all it, all it took to sign up for the classes was just to fill out some paperwork. <laughs> you know, it was like that was that was the easy part. But once I was signed up for all those classes, and once I just started going to campus, and you know, it wasn't that hard to go to campus and then just start showing up to all these classes. It's kind of like working a job. You know, you just go to school and that's your job. So I'm just going from one class to the next to the next. But now all these assignments start coming in, okay? Yep. <laughs> um, term papers and stuff. You know, and the, and these exams. So that so you know, the easy part is you can get through the first week pretty easily. Yep. You just go up and you, you just go, and it's a little fun. It's fun, you know. Okay, I've got you know 31 hours of class this week. You just go from class to class to class, and you're signed up for all the stuff. Okay, but now the ch when the challenge comes, it's because of all these assignments coming through. <laughs> so now that's when you have to go like, okay, how fast can I do these assignments? How quickly can I get them off my plate? You know, that's the time management exercise. That's the that's the performance aspect of it. How quickly can I turn this around? How fast can I load this knowledge into my brain? You know, how quickly can I learn? How fast can I absorb this material? See, without that kind of external pressure on me under those circumstances, I don't think I would have performed, you know, that well. I would have been lazy. Most students are lazy. But when you push yourself, when you've got all this stuff coming at you and you're trying to get it off your plate, that's that was like for me a fun challenge. I wanted to see what that was like. And I wasn't worried about failure because I'd already failed. <laughs> I was already, you know, I'd already flunked. Yep. So, you know, I couldn't really, you know, fail any worse, and nobody expected anything of me. But my goal was just to challenge myself to see how good I could do under those kind of conditions. And I think this, it's, it's rare that we really create those kind of conditions for us. You know, you, you probably have a situation where you're working at a job and there's a crunch time, and you find that during that crunch time, it may last just a couple days or, you know, something around that, that you can perform really well when you've got these tight deadlines. But suddenly, you're getting all the stuff off your plate, you know, you're you're putting the, the, the unimportant stuff aside and you're doing what needs to be done. Um, but what if you could maintain that for a period of months? You know, and the tr truth was, even in college, I had, you know, there were breaks. You know, you have spring break, you have Christmas break, um, there's the weekends. So I had time to catch up. You know, I had time to do other stuff. Um, so it wasn't this, you know, constant pressure all the time. But by putting that pressure on me, I, you know, that's what really pushed me to perform. So it was really kind of um, an amazing experience, and I'm really glad I went through it. Okay. So, you know, the, the, the challenge for another student is sign up for a load of classes that you think you, you know, you have a good chance of handling, but that would push you to really perform at your best. You know, see, see I, I figured with all the stuff I read about time management, all the stuff I read about productivity and accelerated learning, I figured that if I took this many classes and I applied everything I knew about, about you know, about how to perform better, that I could succeed. 
I figured it would be possible if I did my absolute best. You know, so but I but I realized there's no way I'd be able to do it if I wasn't doing close to my best. You know, if I, you know, was lazy or whatever, there's no way I would succeed. So what I, what I, you know what I would say for for an average student is, um, you know, given you know, try to try to get a glimpse get a glimpse of get a sense of how could you perform if you applied everything you knew <laughs> right now everything you knew about time management what level could you perform at and give yourself a challenge that 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 forces you to apply all those things or fail <laughs> you have to be willing to fail yeah you have to be you have to be willing to fail you have to be willing to um to do your best and have it not be good enough yeah i was willing to do that i was willing to to try you know the first semester i took on 31 units and i was willing to do my best and and have it not be good enough you know that was about double the course load but i thought you know i've got so much slack there from from being lazy that i could probably double my productivity you know if i got rid of all the fluff i could probably double my productivity i think most people most people who work at you know jobs especially corporate jobs could probably would probably agree with me that if they really did their best in a single day they could double their productivity from their average day you know they can get twice as much of the important work done in a single day but they really did their best so that was that was simply my challenge i wanted to double my productivity and and once i did that once i had that experience behind me i saw how i saw all, my, all these other ways i could increase it even more so you know um in my second semester you know instead of taking 31 units again i went to 39 i pushed it even further and in my in my final semester i dropped it down to 37 i originally signed up for 40 40 units to push it even you know to one unit more but um my guidance counselor told me there was a class i'd registered for that i didn't need to graduate so you know so i thought oh okay well then i'll drop it <laughs> but but i ended up actually doing um uh i ended up working uh, developing computer games on the side during that semester so i increased the challenge even more so i was actually working at a job too while i was um doing all those other things um so you know it's, it's just amazing how much we can we can do when we really push ourselves to to do our absolute best but we have to create the conditions that that call for our best so manipulate the environment to force us to grow yeah in some ways because otherwise we'll just be lazy <laughs> you know that that's part of the power principle it's it's basically a way of building our our self discipline muscles you know of, of putting um putting the onus on us to um you know to do our best to to make the effort. Okay. And uh, another thing of course that uh, you're very famous for on stevepavlina.com uh, is how you transitioned from being a carnivore or rather an omnivore I guess to being now you're an, your diet is an 100% raw vegan diet. And you know I'm 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 one of those people who's been very inspired by it and I'm actually trying to transition to a place where I can experiment with it myself. um but i guess the stumbling blocks that i'm finding which i'm sure a lot of people will find this as a stumbling block probably is the cravings for you know like the the processed food like for the sugars and for the wheats and stuff like that and i'm wondering did how how did how would you recommend you know since we are discussing and um things at the principal level that people really deal with this and maybe go around it go through it and use the principles to you know overcome this principle and get to a place where they can maybe um experiment with a raw vegan lifestyle. Yeah, well th- I mean this was an example of where I actually couldn't make that transition until I discovered this model and then when I applied this model to it, it worked <laughs> and I was able to transition um because in my case I went I went vegetarian back in 1993. That was pretty easy. I originally did it just as a 30-day trial and I I liked it so much that it stuck and I didn't really have any problems with cravings back then. I was still eating eggs and uh, dairy. so it was just lacto ovo vegetarian but that was you know going from omnivore to that was a pretty easy transition um and then in 1997 i transitioned from vegetarian to vegan which means eliminating all animal products and just um sticking with plant foods but they can be cooked you know they can be processed stuff too um to be vegan and that wasn't that difficult to transition either in fact i remember the first week i lost 7 uh, pounds and my wife had the same effect she lost 7 pounds the first week too because all this dairy clog came pouring out of us that was kind of gross but <laughs> you know we um that that transition was kind of neat and showed us we were on the right path our our bodies were you know detoxifying we were getting some of this this, this clog out that it accumulated from eating so many animal products um and and I felt much better I felt lighter I felt um much more clear-headed the benefits for me were not so much physical like more physical energy as they were more mental I, I just felt so much more clear mentally 
like I could think better. And my business started doing better um, you know, around that time as well, shortly thereafter. Uh, about a year after I went vegan, my business started um, improving a lot. And that, uh, um, that showed me, you know, again, I'm on the right path here. And, but when I tried to convert to the raw food diet, that was very difficult. I actually tried – I think I did my first experiment with it in a, maybe around 1998, and I only lasted three days. Wow. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, because all I was doing was, like, eating salads, like lots of vegetables. I was probably getting, like, you know, not even 500 calories a day. So I was, uh, by the third day, I was just starving, and I just had to have a veggie burger. So I, I said, forget that. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> but but I, um, the problem was there that I was out of alignment with the trans- principle of truth because I simply didn't have any knowledge or information about the diet. I didn't know how to do it properly. So the way I was attempting to do it was just stupid. <laughs> um, you know, People who eat the raw food diet, you need to get your calories basically from, from fruit uh, or from fat, fatty foods like, like nuts, seeds, avocados, coconut, that kind of thing. Because vegetables have hardly any calories. You know, you'd have to you'd have to eat like 20 heads of lettuce a day or something just to, wow. <laughs> just to get you know get enough calories. Um, so you you know if you're focus if you're focusing on the vegetables part of the diet, you're you're gonna fail. Um, vegetables are an important part of the diet, especially greens, but that's not where you're gonna get the uh, the bulk of your calories from because you'll you'll get full. Your stomach will fill up far faster than you're gonna be able to get the calories you need. So the truth was the first principle. You know, I had to align myself with. I had to educate myself about the raw diet and how to do it. And so I, you know, I got some raw cook, uh, cookbooks, or you call them uncooked books. Yeah, and, um, I don't even know why they call them cookbooks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uncooked books. It's kind of funny to call them a cookbook when it's a raw, you know, raw, and you're not cooking anything. But <laughs> still, food preparation books, whatever you want to call it. And and going, you know, getting those books helped me, and I was eventually able to do some 30-day trials of the raw food diet. Um, and and that's where also I had to apply the power principle to 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 discipline myself to do that for 30 days. And the 30-day trial approach works well because you can always tell yourself after 30 days I'll quit. Now, in this situation, after 30 days, um, I think I did a a 45-day trial at one point also. I did quit because I found found it too difficult. The diet was too complicated. And so I I kept going back and forth with these truth and power principles, you know, where I was learning more about the diet, educating myself more about it, learning from other people, especially as as I was um, doing more stuff on the Internet and there were all these raw food websites popping up. I was able to read, read from them learn more recipes, learn how to make the diet simpler. Instead of making these complicated gourmet recipes to try to emulate cooked food, I just started making simpler foods like, like green smoothies, you know, just basically banana, spinach, and water. and it tastes great, even though it looks green. You know, you'd think the spinach would mess up the flavor of the bananas, but it tastes sweet and, and delicious, and I loved it. So, so I kept going back and forth between those truth and, truth and power principles. And I did another 30-day trial in January of this year, and afterwards, I still went back to cook food. I, you know, I still failed to make the change stick. And, and that's, that was the time I was, uh, I was actually working on my book during that time. And I, I realized then that I wasn't applying the, the model correctly. I was missing the love aspect. See, in order to really grow, we have to have truth, love, and power all applied in the same direction. We can't just apply one or two of them um, for, for a big challenge that we're facing. We need to be congruent. We need to apply all three of these because truth, love, and power are not in conflict. When they're all working well, they're, they're all pointing in the same direction. So this is not a model of either or. It's a model of and. And the love principle basically said to me that the reason I was failing on this diet is that I was not connecting with other raw foodists. I had no social support structure in place. So what I did is I basically joined a raw food social network, and uh, an online social network. It's called um, uh, it's called uh, GiveItToMeRaw.com. And I I signed up there, and I started making more raw food friends. And as I started writing more about the diet, people, you know, other raw foodists were emailing me and giving me help and advice. I started making friends with them. And basically, I just made a lot of raw foodists as friends uh, over the Internet. And as I I started talking more and more with them, I realized, oh, okay, these are, you know, now I'm building relationships with these people, and this is like a social support structure I have. Even though it was a virtual social network because it was all over the Internet initially – that was what I needed to succeed. And so now I have these other raw foodists as friends, and now I feel like, oh, I'm not going this alone anymore. It's not just truth and power. I'm not just like trying to power through this all on my own. Um, you know, now I have I have other raw foodists I can turn to for help. I felt like uh, by succeeding with this diet, I was becoming part of a larger community. And once I got once I got all those social connections there, it was actually pretty easy to make the change and make it stick. Um, because then I started thinking of myself like as a raw foodist and, and these friends that were 
um, counting on me. And even them, you know, even other people were asking me for advice about the diet. I'm thinking, whoa, you're asking me for advice? I've only been doing this for a little while. <laughs> but but realizing that you know I was I was becoming part of a larger community, and that 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 combines with the principle of oneness, um, which is truth and love. I started feeling a greater sense of um, of oneness with the raw food community. I started feeling very connected with it. And, and the interesting thing was is that when I was trying to do this diet on my own, whenever I'd do the diet, it would make me feel disconnected from other people. Like I'm the only one eating raw foods here and everyone else around me is eating cooked foods. You know? But when I, when I started connecting with more people in the raw foods community, I found that when I did the diet, it made me feel even more connected, even with people who weren't raw. So it's like I felt more connected to my family than I, than I used to because now I had all the social support around me so I was feeling great about what I was doing and I feel like I'm helping other people too so even even if I go out and, and um, uh, like like this past uh, week I was in uh, Tampa Florida for a conference and I was the only raw foodist that I knew about there at all the meals I was at but yet I felt very connected with all the people around me because I feel like now I'm going there is like I'm a representative of the raw community <laughs> I'm not just some isolated guy surrounded by cooked food eaters you know, I feel like I've got this social support network behind me backing me up with what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Yes. You, know, like you, and you get that social support network around you, that, that love connection, and that made me really fall in love with the diet, is, is falling in love with the people who were doing this diet, you know, making friends in the raw food community. Okay. And, and so that, that, was, that was the key element I needed to change, and I, I think we can apply this, you know, well beyond diet. Any, any change you want to make, surround yourself and make friends with other people who already embody that change. You know, you use that principle of love. Make make those connections. Don't feel it's something you have to go through on your own and just power through. Okay. And in fact, that um that 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 principle of of um of of having a base of people who energize you and um and how you can actually use that uh, to use that energy to so that you can go out and reach to, reach out to other people. It's something that you mentioned in the book in passing, but I must say. Quite possibly the most powerful, one of the most powerful things I really got from the book was that just that simple basic idea. I think you only described it in like a paragraph, but it really, it really touched me. Really, I really like that part. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's a lot, there's a lot of ideas like that in the book. I really tried to make the book dense with ideas. So you know, there's, a, uh, you know, I didn't want to use the book as basically, you know, a way of hammering people on the raw food diet. I, I want people to make their own conscious choices whether they adopt a diet like mine or not. But I just wanted to, you know, I basically just used the book to share my experiences with that, to share how, um, you know, how important that was to, to, uh, to use these principles to make changes. Okay. Um, and and uh, an idea that I expressed um, some time ago, it was just an abstract idea. And as soon as I said it, um, people pretty much looked at me as though I was, I was crazy, was that um, we should try to get to a place where when, when we eat food, it's just – a, a pure case of nourishment. It's just, you know, taking a piece of life and putting it into yourself so that you can, you know, you can thrive and your body's working well. And it shouldn't be something that we do for entertainment or for, um, you know, for, you know, having our cooking shows and having these big celebrations and stuff around eating. It, we should get, try to get to a place where it's purely for nourishment. And I was just curious about your ideas, you know, about that. Well, um, I have a little different perspective on that because, you know, I would look at it through the perspective of truth, love, and power. When you're looking at food through the um, through the lens of pure nourishment, you've got the truth element because that's basically what food is. It's, it's nourishment for us. Um, but you can, I think you can actually deepen that experience a little bit by, by bringing in the love and power aspects. See, if you eat food that, that you feel good about too, it can empower you. But if you're using it as some kind of emotional addiction, then it disempowers you. So when, when, when I eat food, I'm eating healthy food, but that also tastes good to me, that I feel good about. So I feel like, okay, that's giving me you know, the truth, that's giving me the love, that's giving me the power. It's like I, I do feel an emotional connection to the food I'm eating, but I want it to be in a, very, in a very loving way. I want it to be in a way that makes me feel good, that makes me more connected with other people. I, I remember um, about three weeks ago, I was at this um, Raw Spirit Festival in Sedona, Arizona, and it's basically just this raw foods festival with thousands of people there. Um, and, and all the meals were raw too. So I'm sitting, you know, there eating um, raw foods with other people, you know, meeting them for the first time. And I just thought how cool that was to be sharing, a, you know, a totally raw meal. And I'm surrounded by all these other raw foodists all eating raw food. I thought, you know, that's a really cool thing. So for me, that meal was a lot more than nourishment. That was like a loving connection with other people. 
and we're you know the conversation we're having we're talking about conscious growth we're talking about helping the planet talking about our life purpose and you know our sense of mission very high awareness conversations going all, on all around me um, and and so while while I could reduce food to just the truth element you know that it's just nourishment I think it it, it can be very um, very helpful to to bring in the love and the power principles and I think the reason that people um, succumb to addictions is that they're trying or, or, or they're eating food for the wrong reasons they're eating food for emotional reasons um, and making trying to make it something it isn't is that they're trying to fulfill those love and power aspects but they're going about it the wrong way you know it's like we still we still have that need to fulfill those love and power aspects when we eat um, but but the key is to do it in a way that stays aligned with truth and doesn't pull us out of alignment with truth you know you can you can eat food that um, makes you feel good in the moment you know, which might be, you know, give you a sense of love and connection, but it disempowers you. So you get love without power. Um, you know, that's a that's the emotional eating, and then it ruins your body. So now it's disempowering you, but it makes you feel good in the moment. So that's an imbalance. Okay, but if you eat food that makes you feel good and it empowers you, makes you feel great, and makes your body stronger, makes your cells healthier, helps your body detoxify, that's a good combination. That's you know, that's something we want to keep and encourage because that will support us not just with the knowledge, but with the right feeling we have. Does that make, does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Um, and I, as as the fi- final question, for someone who wants to consciously grow, um, what what would you put on the not-to-do list? Because, you know, in, in the book, you pretty much go in, in a lot of detail as to what, and that's one of the things I loved about the book, is that it's, it's action steps. It's things that people can actually do. It's not abstract. So what would you say that people don't do? What should people put on their not-to-do list? Well, with your not-to-do list, it's basically anything that pulls you out of alignment with truth, love, or power. So the not-to-do list, the first thing is any area of your life where you're succumbing to denial or you're succumbing to falsehood. This is where, you know, those areas of your life where you're not listening to yourself, where you're not listening to your feelings, not listening to your intuition. So not listening to your own self and going by what others are teaching you, you know, or, other, or others are telling you, even though your intuition is, is telling you, no, this is wrong for me. Like if, like if you go to work each day, and you just feel like you don't want to be there, you know. And, but 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 other people say, well, you got to pay your bills, you got to make money, you, know, you have to go to work, you have to have a job. Well, you know, that's that's taking you out of alignment with truth because you're not being honest about how you really feel. If you really feel you shouldn't be there, you know, that um, honor those feelings and, and don't deny them. Um, when I started honoring those feelings, that that led me to never have another job. <laughs> you know, I. And um, you did well. The last job I had, was, <laughs> yeah, the last job I had, I think, was when I was maybe like 20 years old or so, something like that. You know, now I'm 37, so it was like 17 years ago. So I haven't, you know, haven't had a job in a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, yeah, actually, I think it was a little later than that. It was probably like 15, 16 years ago. But anyway, you know, I don't want a job, so I, you know, but I, I come more in alignment with principle of truth when I admit I don't want a job, so I'm not going to get one. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, if people say you're crazy, you know how many ter- times I've heard the expression, "Oh, Steve has gone off the deep end again," or <laughs> "Steve is crazy, Steve is nuts," but yet I'm happy, and they're not. <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm meeting my, all my needs just fine. I'm living, I'm living a life that's empowering for me, and you know, makes me happy, and it's helping other people. So it doesn't matter what other people think. You know, you've got to honor honor your own truth. So, so not aligning yourself with truth—that's the first mistake. Second mistake: not aligning yourself with love. And the way you don't align yourself with love is that your, you, your life becomes filled with things that just don't connect with you. So look at all the stuff in your life. Make a list make, make a list of all the people and the places and the things and the experiences and the activities that are flowing through your life. You know, how you spend your time, your hobbies, um, the values and ideals that, that, that are being um, taught to you, you know, that the ones that you're, you're supposedly upholding in your life right now, the, the way you live, your lifestyle. You know, list out all those things. And then circle the ones that feel that you feel really, really, truly, strongly connected with. Okay, and if your list um, ends up having less than 80% of the things, you know, if less than 80 percent of the things on your list are things you really, truly, strongly connect with, you've got a big problem in the area of love. It means your life is filled with things you don't connect with instead of things you do connect with. So what you got to start doing is taking those things you didn't circle and kick them out of your life. <laughs> so if your job was one of those things you didn't circle, kick it out of your life and say, I quit. Okay, and find a new way of um, of you know, of uh, a new career or a new line of work that really connects with you, that you would put a circle around it because you feel very deeply, strongly connected with it. 
um, kick the people out of your life who don't connect with you and fill, the, fill that area, with, uh, that part of your life with people who do connect with you, with people you've, um, you love, people you like, people you admire, people you respect. And, um, and you know, that will point you in the direction of growth. And the, and the third mistake is to be out of alignment with power. And you're, you're out of alignment with power when basically you're, you're, you know, you're disempowering yourself. You're not taking action. You're not making an effort. You're not disciplining yourselves. You're not doing things to build your discipline. See, see we don't, you know, we don't, we're not all born super strong. We have to you know, grow stronger both in our physical bodies and our, and our level of mental discipline over time. So you, you really need to do things that empower you and that build your discipline. One of the things is, you know, I do a lot is just hanging out with other disciplined people, you know, using the, 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 um, the love aspect there to, to bring those people into my life, but also just um, reading other sources that, of inspiring material, you know, reading lots of books. Um, like I probably mentioned earlier, I've read over a 1,000 personal development books, and I just keep reading more. I keep connecting with people. Um, I, I was speaking at a conference in Tampa, but at the same time I'm going to that conference, I'm to speak there. I'm going to other people's sessions. And I'm talking to other authors and speakers there to learn from them, to, um, to come up with new ideas and empower myself. And I did come away with some good ideas there. So, you know, we, we, we make mistakes. You know, pretty much every mistake you're making in your life is either a lack of alignment with truth, a lack of alignment with love, or a lack of alignment with power. You're, you're, you're either succumbing to denial, denial and falsehood, you're not connected with what you want, you're connected with too much of what you don't want, or you're not empowering yourself. You're not making yourself stronger each day and taking lots of, lots of action to, uh, to bring your, your life into alignment with these principles. So, you know, it's, the, the cool thing I like about this model is that you can not only use it to point you in the direction of positive growth, you can also use it to, di to diagnose problems. And any, any problem any, in any area of your life, you can use this model to diagnose where, you're, where you've gone wrong. If you're, if, you're, you know, if you're suffering, if you're stagnating, if you're feeling disconnected, it's a problem with truth, love, and or power. That's you know that's basically it. You'll you'll be able to, and once you diagnose what area you're having a problem with, then so, solutions emerge. You know, um, once you once you identify your problem as like a is a lack of love, for instance, a lack of connection with what you want, the solution becomes obvious. It's just the opposite of that. Go out and connect. You know, with what you want. Join a club or a group or something, or just get out and be around people. You know, invite people to lunch who can um, who, you know who you admire, who you respect, who can bring more of what you want to your life. So. Um, you know, so this model is not only just a, an arrow in the direction of conscious growth, it's also a diagnostic tool. I, I had a lot of questions, but sadly the hour is up, so I, I thank you so, so much, Steve. Um, oh, no, no problem. It's, it's my pleasure. All right, well, that was the great Steve Pavlina. Well, ha have a great day, Steve. This has been the Displaced African Podcast. The Displaced African is the African Immigrant's personal development blog. You can find it at www.thedisplacedafrican.com.